We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, Episode 9 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. On today's episode, Dr. Garfinkel talks to Christine Grimaldi-Clarkson, Executive Director of the California Rock Art Foundation, about her career and some of her rock art research. Welcome, everyone. This is your Rock Art Podcast, Episode number 9. So... As we've continued this adventure, the journey in rock art, we're graced by one of my close colleagues, the executive director of the California Rock Art Foundation, Christine Grimaldi-Clarkson. And she's going to be talking to us for more or less of a full hour, a full episode. And we're going to uh, weave our way through the journey of how she got involved in anthropology, archaeology, and rock art studies why she uh, chose the particular research project that she did for her master's and how that came about. The particular subject matter we're actually going to emphasize, which I don't think has been extensively discussed on this particular journey of ours into the domain of rock art, is on what we like to call archaeoastronomy. Christine, hello. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Well, open us up in the way of introducing yourself and a bit of your background and uh, tell us how you ever got involved in this wonderful adventure in anthropology, archaeology, and rock art. Please. <laughs> well, um, I started off more in anthropology, but going even further back, way back, I've always had an interest in human history. Mm. And, you know, not so much names and dates like they often make you memorize in grade school, and, or at least when I was young, but how humans lived and, and why, why they did certain things. Didn't really know about the field of anthropology until I went into college, though, or even archaeology. To me, archaeology had to do with studying Egypt or dinosaurs, had that same kind of impression that a lot of people have. You said you entered college. Where did you go to college? Merced Community College is where I started off. And so that was an undergraduate degree there, was it? Yeah, I earned my AA in liberal studies there. In liberal studies? Liberal studies. <laughs> I don't think they even offer that anymore. They call it something else now. I think now they make you focus more in a, a particular field. So I think you're one of the rare birds that, that I ever know who got an AA in liberal studies. That's phenomenal. I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> I love to learn new things. And so I, I was once told I need to focus more. 
And my response was, I, I am focused. I focus. I do it all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So I, I'm not sure what that says about me, but. <laughs> well, you know, that says a lot about you, Christine, because being an archaeologist, anthropologist, what have you, don't we have to be sort of a, a master of almost everything? It's such an all-inclusive discipline, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. And that's what I found. And that's kind of how I ended up in archaeology. But I actually started off kind of in psychology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Took a course in psychology and did very well and thought, well, heck, maybe I should do this. I found that interesting. So was this post-AA? This was during earning my AA. I still hadn't really focused or decided on a major yet. Okay. Gotcha. I went and talked to a counselor and said, I think I like psychology and I'm going to have to transfer to another school pretty soon. So I have to choose something. And he said, well, why don't you do, what was it? Applied behavioral sciences. Oh, wow. Yeah. Doesn't that sound interesting? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I think they call it cognitive sciences now. Ooh. But at the time I kind of went, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's kind of more, you know, observing people, learning about people by watching them, that sort of thing. I said, well, that sounds fascinating. I'm a people watcher. Okay, let's check that out. (laughs) (laughs) So he told me I needed to take an anthropology course, which I had no idea what that was. And I read the description, which, you know, it says it's the study of humans and their development, which is kind of a broad description. And it still left me with a lot of questions. (laughs) So I didn't really know what I would be walking into and was a little nervous to take that course. But I walked into the classroom. It has since moved at Merced College, but the old classroom had cases that surrounded the walls filled with artifacts and bones and dinosaur fossils and things like that, you know, and I just immediately was fascinated with it all and staring at everything and taking it in. And I felt at home right away. Yeah, right away and wanted to change my major almost immediately. But I made myself wait. (laughs) I made it a whole week. (laughs) (laughs) That's phenomenal. Yeah, I went up to the instructor a week later and said, okay, I'm going to major in anthropology. What do I need to do? And uh, he said, well, you need to go talk to the counselor and change some courses. And we have an archaeology class that you should take. And we have an archaeology field course that if you're interested, you should take which I did. And that's where I learned that archaeology is not actually the study of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> what an epiphany, um, huh? Yeah, but you know, it's the study of humans, which just is right up my field. So I loved archaeology and took the field course. Absolutely loved that. Transferred to UC Davis after getting my AA at Merced College. But I came back to Merced College and volunteered for the field course for the next couple of years. I just loved it so much. So At Davis, my focus was bio or forensic anthropology, which is the study of human skeletal remains. And I worked with both ancient and modern remains. So that was my initial focus. But I recognize there's sometimes a need to exhume the remains. So I, uh, you know, realized that archaeology uses the same techniques and processes, and it was good for me to continue to focus in the archaeology. So did the archaeology as well. And you were at Davis? UC uh, Davis? UC Davis, yeah. I did not know that. Oh, my yeah. word. Worked with Dr. Henry McHenry. Great oh, guy. Oh, yes, yes. Brilliant. <laughs> and Bettinger. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. And as a filler and personal interest, I also took a bunch of art history courses. Mm. And at some point realized I had enough to get a minor. So I got a minor in art history. Wow. <laughs> so like I said, I kind of focused in it all. <laughs> 
So when you went to graduate school at UC Davis, were you were you on a track vis-a-vis a master's degree at that point? Well, I got my bachelor's at UC Davis. Oh, I see. Because you had to finish. Sure, sure. I understand yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah you tra- transfer and get your bachelor's first. And then, you know, my goal was to get my master's eventually. You know, doctorate would be great too, but at least a master's. And it, it, it took a little while. I took a year off, which turned into like 10 or 12. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. And in the meantime, you know, did some other things, worked some odd jobs, volunteered here and there where I could, continue to get experience. I know you and have a family. How did that work into all that? Yeah, well, you know, that happened along the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, children were not a goal of mine, I'll be honest, but I was hit head on by a drunk driver at one point back in about oh, 2001, wow. I believe. As I say, my life flashed before my eyes. And I thought that was kind of it. And, you know, that kind of makes you rethink things yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, not long after that, I ended up pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So you had, so you had two fatal errors, right? (laughs) (laughs) Depending on how you look at it. Wow. No, I, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. No. Um, um, You might want, you might want to change that uh, head on collision. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, even that, you know, sometimes sometimes there's blessings hidden in there, you know, so wouldn't want to go through it again. But I ended up with a family and a home and, and I'm still doing okay. And I was told initially that I might not ever be able to walk again. My foot was broken in several places. But as you know, I can walk and I get around just fine. And I appreciate every step I can take. So that's a phenomenal story. I I really did not know that about you. And (laughs) phenomenal. What a what a journey. What an interesting journey. So you got your bachelor's from UC Davis. Mm -hmm. You you got some further information about physical anthropology or and archaeology there. What next? Well, I ended up back in Merced. I lived other places for a while, Davis, Chico. Ended up back in Merced, though, and bought a home here and got a job at Merced Community College, where I still work. I'm a lab technician in the anthropology and science departments there full time. It's a great job. I now uh, run that field class that I used to volunteer four years ago. So it's it's awesome. <laughs> and I kind of fell into rock art, which I didn't expect. Like I said, I have a minor in art history. And my favorite part of the art history classes was always when we talked about the rock art. And I had a personal interest. I had visited several sites in the Southwest and whatnot and taken photographs, wondered what the images might mean. But really never took it much further than that. One day I was in town and I had you know reconnected with that private property. Well, let me go back and mention that the field class that we do at Merced Community College is on private property. So I reconnected with that property owner. And one day he told me he wanted to show me some other sites on his property. So I said, okay, of course. And he took me out and started to lead me through a site that had rock art kind of spread throughout. And these were petroglyphs or images that are kind of carved or pecked into the rock. And there was, you know, first kind of one here on this rock and a few here on that rock. And then there was a boulder that was just covered in them. And then a few more and a few more. And then this panel that's covered in them. And my jaw just literally dropped to the ground. (laughs) I I couldn't help it. What was the landscape context of this rock art that you saw for the first time? Well, it's in central California Uh in the low foothills of the Sierra Nevada. 
So kind of rolling hills, grassy plains, oak trees, beautiful area. And there's a creek, a seasonal creek that runs through the middle of the site. Hmm. So it's a beautiful little area. And I didn't know there was rock art locally at all. So this was a complete surprise to me. I knew that we had some down in Southern California. I knew, of course, about the rock art in the Southwest, but I had no idea there was any rock art nearby. So, I mean, shock, awe, all of the above. It was just, you know, an amazing experience to see for the first time. And then to top it off, the property owner looked at me and said, you know, the site hasn't really been studied. It's been recorded, meaning it's been documented that it exists. But beyond that, it hasn't really been studied. And I'd like somebody to study it. Had the property owner informed anyone before about the, the nature of that resource? Since he, had, since he had approved a field class, I guess the question is, how come he didn't tell anyone about the rock art? Well, he also happens to have a bachelor's in anthropology, among other degrees. Uh-huh. And some archaeology experience. So he recognized the importance of what he has there and wanted it studied, wanted to know, you know, exactly what might be going on there. And yet at the same time feels the need to kind of keep it quiet because he's afraid of people trespassing, possibly destroying it, that sort of thing. I see. So, he, you know, he's rather careful with whom he shares it with. Nice. Yeah. So it was nice that he shared it with me. And then he offered me the opportunity to study it if I wanted I have a hard time saying no to opportunities like that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way I could have said no. Uh Um, It was also, like I said, wanted to go back to grad school was, was at that point where I was really ready to go back and start applying, needed a project. So it seemed kind of like fate. I see. So I, I took it on. Where did you go to do your graduate studies? I ended up getting accepted at UC Merced, which also worked out well for me because I didn't have to travel to go to school very far. So that was nice. Was actually the first person accepted into their world cultures program is what they called it. It's since been changed to interdisciplinary humanities. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I'm also one of the few people you will ever meet with a degree in world cultures. <laughs> I like I like that. I like that. <laughs> but my emphasis is archaeology. Fascinating. You uh, did how many years at, uh, I guess it's called CSU Merced, isn't it? It's UC Merced, University of California. Excuse me, UC Merced. Yes, University of California Merced. That's right. And so they they must also give PhDs besides masters as well? They do. They do. Okay. Yeah. And, and your masters took you, I presume two years or more. It took me a little longer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I knew it would, it is a two year program. That's how it was arranged. Um, and I, I will state that I don't know anyone else that's done it in two years. There probably are some, but (laughs) the other people I went to school with took longer also. (laughs) There you go. No, I, I planned on at least three, though, because I was working full-time at Merced College, and I worked full-time at UC Merced as well as a TA while I did this and did original research. So I knew it would take me a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I was taking on quite a bit of stuff. It ended up taking me four, <laughs> and most of that last year was writing my thesis several times. So Now, as an, as an entree into our next segment, we only have about another minute or so, I guess you made some remarkable discoveries or... Other things relating to this special rock art site? I did. I recognized that there are some special solar shadow alignments that happen only on the equinox, both the autumnal and the vernal equinox. And had that been recognized before? 
it had not. The property owner mentioned to me that he thought he saw something happening, which did draw my attention to pay close attention to that. But no one had ever really recorded what was happening. So I spent probably about 10 years out there repeatedly going out both on the Equinox and several other times of the year to record what was happening. Well, that's quite a dedication to to do to actually, you know, spend that much time at the site to really investigate and recognize that critical pattern. Well, I think we'll close the autobiographical portion of the program. And in the next segment, I think we're going to try to peer into a bit of the mystery surrounding the uh, subdiscipline of archaeoastronomy. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field then check out an introduction to paleo radiography a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines created by archaeologist radiographer and lecturer james elliott the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education it is approved by the chartered institute for archaeologists as four hours of training that's in the uk for those of you that don't know so don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development for more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm back with you again for the uh, Rock Art Podcast, sponsored by the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have uh, two other sponsors, actually, Shri Matucci and Dr. Dan Dakar, that are helping to defray our costs and underwrite and sponsor our continuing efforts here. This is episode nine, and we have Christine Grimaldi-Clarkson with us. Christine, welcome back. Thank you. And in this segment, I think what we'll try to do is talk a bit about the discipline or subdiscipline of archaeoastronomy and how astronomy might be perceived by Native people and how that could it all be related to the study of archaeology. It's all yours, Christine. <laughs> you, get, you get 20 minutes to cover a subject that is rather complex. It can be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start off with the definition. Archaeoastronomy is the study of how people all over the world have viewed and interacted with the sky throughout time. Wow. So, for some reason, there are some people that don't really put much faith in this study. I don't really understand that myself. I think it's time to change that. 
And I think to understand why it's time to change that, you really need to think about how many people in the past viewed their world. And they didn't have the same viewpoint that we have. They didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have. They didn't know that they were a ball floating out in this universe and there were other planets around them and things like that. We have that knowledge and that kind of basis for our thought today. So it's kind of hard for us to understand their viewpoint. But if you kind of take a moment to think about it, if you don't have all the scientific knowledge that we have today, and you think of yourself standing out in the middle of an open field, your world is what you see around you. So it doesn't stop at the horizon. It includes that sky above you. That's like a big dome that circles you. And you also know that there's probably something underneath you because there's caves that you might be able to go into. There's water that you can get dive down into underneath, holes in the ground, things like that. So you have a sense of something being underneath you too. And that's your world that you live in. You're at the center of it in that world. Your universe is completely surrounding you. So the sky is just as much a part of your world as anything else. So I don't really understand why so many people have kind of shunned the study of archaeoastronomy, but I think it's time we change that. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, I, I do understand where you're coming from because uh, there are those who are rock art scholars who have looked with a jaundice eye, if you will, at the study of archaeoastronomy. And maybe you could explain maybe just a taste of that controversy I think the issue relates back to how to best understand rock art, doesn't it? Yeah, well, even the study of rock art has kind of been marginalized to an extent. I think that's changing now, which I also appreciate. But I think that has to do with kind of a shift in archaeology itself. Mm -hmm. Kind of 80s, 90s, there was a shift in archaeology to become very scientific, which there's really nothing wrong with that. And that led to a lot of great discoveries. But anything that wasn't completely based in science that couldn't be completely tested by our kind of old version of the scientific method, it was just marginalized. And so rock art was kind of one of those. And archaeoastronomy certainly fell into that realm. It was hard to do actual scientific analysis of it. And especially back then, we didn't have the scientific ways to date it and things like we do now. So it was just kind of marginalized because of that. Since then, archaeology has changed. We've come around to kind of what we call post-processual thinking and kind of even beyond that now, where we realize that being wholly scientific kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it minimizes the role of human beings and their culture yeah. in the understanding of the past. Would you agree? I would agree. Thank you. And so what you're what you're positing, what you're what you're advising us to do is to open up our minds and try to get a glimpse of how native people and even during prehistory, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, viewed the cosmos. Yes. Yeah. So how do we possibly get a hold of that kind of a perspective if we want to understand astronomy? in the eyes of our prehistoric ancestors? Well, we don't have a lot of sources of information, unfortunately. One of the best resources that we do have is ethnography. And what's that? Which are the recordings that we do have of what people of the past, the way they thought, what their beliefs were, why they did things the way they did. 
there are problems with ethnographies. They're not complete. A lot of them were done by Europeans, and so their viewpoint is not necessarily accurate, things like that. But it is, at this point, probably the most information we have, so we do use a lot of ethnography. What do Native people say about the cosmos, about viewing the sky at night and the movements of the sun, the moon, and the stars? Well, there is some variation from group to group, of course, but it's interestingly enough, kind of throughout history and throughout the world, we see that most people had some form of interaction with the sky, some beliefs that those glowing dots that moved around, some moved more than others. A lot of ancient peoples believed that those were their ancestors or people that had come before them so that they were living beings up there in that dome. And being above them and having that oversight, those living beings up there also sometimes had control over things like the weather. So they they see in the sky ancestors. Ancestors, yeah. And what did they believe about the sun and the moon? Again, variation from group to group, but in a lot of groups, they were some form of their ancestors, or they were gods, uh, for lack of a better word, celestial beings that had some sort of power. Amazing. And so if an archaeologist was trying to grapple or reconstruct or try to test a hypothesis relating to or reconstructing the relationship of, of of a prehistoric people with the cosmos, how do they do that? A particular group of people or? You know, they, they, they have some idea about the uh, p- particular people or the ancestral group that was living there. And how would they approach such a, a problem archaeologically? What is the me- what's the method that they use to do archaeoastronomy in a word? Uh, start by reading the ethnographies and the stories of the people that lived in that particular area. Okay. If you can find them. <laughs> And then what? And then take what you can from it and be open-minded as you read it as well, especially their stories about how things came to be. Again, keep in mind that they didn't have the scientific viewpoint that we have. <laughs> yeah. And in the famous famous sites that we know or we believe we know or people have argued that have archaeoastronomical significance, what did they do or what did they find that perhaps supported that perspective? Well, a lot of them found in the ethnography that many people had astronomers, shaman astronomers in some cases, in some cases just astronomers, but people that would be in charge of observing the sky and paying attention to what those celestial beings or their ancestors, what they were doing. The patterns to their movements meant something to the people. There's one ethnography in particular, I believe it's Yokuts, but I'm sorry, it could be Chumash, that talks about observing the sky and that the celestial beings up there played a game each year. And the winner of the game would determine whether they had a good or bad year the next year. So clearly paying attention to the sky was very important. It told the people whether they were going to have a good year or a bad year. Now, I'm not clear if a good year means weather-wise, everything, (laughs) but just as good year or a bad year. Okay. And then how does that relate to the rock art per se in terms of understanding astronomy prehistorically? That's where it can get a little trickier. And honestly, I'm still grappling with that a little bit. At this current point, I am at the conclusion that a lot of it has to do with communication. Um, And I want to step back a little bit and say that not only were 
those glowing dots up there in the sky that were moving around, celestial beings and ancestors. But everything around most ancient living people, native peoples, was a living thing. So the rocks, the trees, all of them at one point had been living peoples or their ancestors and had been turned into the rocks, the trees, that sort of thing. That's a very common idea among peoples. And so this this kind of cosmology or worldview, I guess in technical terms, is called animism, isn't it? Yes, it is. And then there's this other level as well that when we deal with the religious specialists or people who have an interface between the supernatural and the natural, and those are sometimes called shamans or medicine persons. Yes. And so you've got that those two kind of levels to deal with in, I think, in many societies throughout the world, don't we? Some people don't like the term shamans. That is generally more associated with other cultures, not so much California cultures, um, mm-hmm. but you know, there's there's debate out there over that. So, I tend to like to use the word of someone who just has the ability to communicate and interact with those celestial and ancient beings. Someone that has some sort of power. Mm-hmm. And how do we? How do native people refer to those people in California, as an example? It varies from tribe to tribe. <laughs> group to group. Sometimes they call them Indian doctors. Sometimes they call them medicine persons. Exactly. I've heard those terms, terminologies sometimes. Yes. But yeah. And it's not necessarily men or women. Again, that can vary from group to group. Yeah. And that's a very important point because I think in certain tribes of California, sometimes these medicine persons were predominantly women. Yes. That has been theorized. So not to be biased, we have a whole group of specialists or cures, doctors, etc., or people that are religiously sophisticated, and they could have been involved with the cosmological realm and this astronomical world, couldn't they? Yes, and almost definitely were. And then what we see in the archaeological record, there are sites, several have been recorded down in Southern California area, where there are certain alignments, either on the equinox or the solstice. The sun will come up in a particular notch on the horizon. In some cases, in other cases, it it might both come up in a notch on the horizon and a particular beam of light will hit a, a image just so, either petroglyph or pictograph just so, and will only hit it on the particular day of the solstice or the equinox and those sorts of things. So there have been hypotheses and theories that those are also archaeoastronomy sites. So, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. I never looked at, when I looked up at the sky, there wasn't any stars up there. But so not sort of being a Western industrial, you know, city guy, I didn't understand what solstice or equinox even meant. <laughs> so yeah. maybe maybe we can explain that in terms of so that our audience members who are not savvy might have a sense of that. That's fair. The solstice, there's first the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year and generally occurs around December 21st, December 22nd. So we have the least light on that day here in Northern America. We have the summer solstice, which is generally June 21st, 22nd, and is the longest day of the year. So we have the most light on that day. And then we have the equinox, both the the vernal or spring one and autumnal or fall one. And those are where we have equal day and equal light. The autumnal or fall one is generally on September 21st, 22nd. 
the vernal or spring one is generally March 21st, 22nd. And again, they're equal, equal light, equal day. And when we're looking at the sun on the horizon, doesn't it sort of move in one direction and then kind of turn around and go the other way? The sun does. So it will travel, see if we're in the northern hemisphere, I'm speaking from our viewpoint here. And I need to correct myself a second ago. I said equal equal light and equal day. I meant equal light and equal night, of course. But anyway, <laughs> Same. anyway, if so, speaking from our viewpoint here in the northern hemisphere, the sun travels to the south uh-huh. during the winter. And when it hits the winter solstice, it hits its farthest point to the south. And it seems to kind of sit there for a couple of days. And then it will start moving back north. And it hits its farthest point north at the summer solstice and does the same thing there. Sits there for a day or two, not quite as long as the winter, and then starts moving back. And so you were mentioning that at some sites, you can see that on the horizon. It's sort of as a marker, right? Yes, you can. At some sites, it will come up, like I say, at a particular notch that kind of stands out on the horizon of, of a mountain. Uh, and the summer solstice or winter solstice, the sun will rise right in that middle of that notch. At no other time of the year will it do it. It's particularly inter- interesting on the winter solstice when it might sit there for a couple of days. So that's kind of nice, kind of neat phenomenon to see. It's wonderful. That's just, it's a wonderful phenomenon and just fantastic. Well, in the next segment, I think we're going to delve into your research and give the listeners a sense of how you do a bit of archaeoastronomy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, we're back again for the uh, final segment on episode nine of the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network with our guest, Christine Grimaldi-Clarkson, who is the executive director of the California Rock Art Foundation and a remarkable researcher in the field of archaeoastronomy. Christine, tell us a bit about how we might go about and learn more about how you created and conducted an archaeoastronomical research project that you have uh, completed and published on that is rather remarkable right here in River City. Well, I started by visiting the site a lot and often. Like I said earlier, the property owner kind of gave me a heads up that he thought he had seen some sort of visual phenomena on the equinox, so I knew to pay attention to the equinox. And this is a site in Merced County, right? It's actually Mariposa County. Excuse me, Mariposa, yes. Yeah, they're right next door. So it's right there in the in the foothills. I guess it's in the foothills, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of almost in the Central Valley of California. Almost, yeah, right in Central California, which, you know, a lot of people like me for a long time didn't know there was rock art here. Some people still don't know that. So Yeah. 
There is. And there's more than just that one site. <laughs> but yeah, it's in the low foothills of the Sierra Nevada. It's actually on the border of the traditional boundaries of the Southern Sierra Miwok and the Northern Valley Yokuts, which are both hunter-gatherer cultures. The property owner turned me on to the equinox. So I started going out there on the equinox and paying attention to what was happening on that day. And what date is the equinox? September 21st, 22nd, mm-hmm. or March 21st, 22nd, right around there. Okay, so those are the two equinoxes, and those are kind of the halfway points of the solstices, right? Between the winter solstice and the summer solstice is a thing called the equinox. Yes. And there's equal day and equal night on the equinox. And what did the uh, owner of the property tell you might happen or why was that important to that? He's something he saw or experienced. You know, that's really all he told me is that he saw something <laughs> on the equinox. He was very vague, okay, which I kind of appreciate actually yeah. it left me yeah. to, to figure it out, you know? So, so I, I went out there on the equinox and actually what you see is, is it's hard to miss. You can't miss it. <laughs> Would you like me to describe it? <laughs> Absolutely. Shall we start, start with that? Start with the beginning and work towards the end. Absolutely. <laughs> Describing it is a, a, a little challenging, so I find it much easier to show pictures and whatnot. So please bear with me. We're talking about an east-west alignment. So there are two low hills at the site, one on the west and one on the east. There's a creek that flows through the middle of it, a seasonal creek. But right in the middle of the site is a perennial pool in the creek. So this pool has water in it year round. Wow. Yeah. And we had a drought a few years back and there was not much water, but even then there was still water and living fish in this pool. So I'm fairly certain it's spring fed, although I'm not exactly where the spring is, but it's in there somewhere. (laughs) So there's always water there, which of course water would be important having a water source. And on the West Bank is where most of the rock art, and again, they're petroglyphs, they're incised or carved in, and they're what we call abstract curvilinear. They don't really look like anything specific. They don't look like human figures or animal figures. They're just kind of curvy, wavy lines, grid patterns, some what we call ladder patterns, things like that. Some bisected circles, circles with crosses in them, things like that. And again, most of them are on the West Bank. And the most predominant feature is on the West Bank where there's a whole bunch of rocks. And in the middle of this pile of natural rocks, there's a clearing that's about three by five meters wide. So about nine by 15 feet. And it's kind of unnatural considering all the rocks that are around it. It's rather clear. And on the back of this clearing is a panel of rocks that's about three by three, so about nine by nine feet. And it is completely just covered in petroglyphs from top to bottom, side to side. There's petroglyphs all over it. And again, abstract curvilinear, and there are ladder patterns on the bottom. Also in this rock panel along the bottom are three niches or kind of holes that go back and they're kind of triangle shaped with the triangle pointing up and actually there's kind of a fourth that's very small that's kind of more of just an indentation in the rock so we'll say four but three very prominent niches that go back about a meter or about three feet into the rock at the bottom of the rock so i'm sitting in my chair on pins and needles what happens at the equinox (laughs) so on the equinox (laughs) i I gotta describe the panel so you you can understand what happens so those niches are important Okay. And again, they're at the bottom and they're spread about a meter apart, about three feet apart as well. Yeah, gotcha. So on the equinox, 
So if you stand down below the panel, down kind of in the bottom of this basin between the two hills, you can see what's going on. On the east bank, there's a rock that's kind of prominently standing up on top of the east bank. And on the morning of the equinox, the sunlight comes up. You can't actually see the sun yet, but the sunlight shows itself. And it kind of slowly creeps down the face of the hill to the west until it hits the rock panel and then continues creeping down the rock panel and lights everything up. People often ask, does it hit one particular petroglyph first or anything? And no, it doesn't seem to predominantly hit any one image. It just kind of creeps down the whole face. And there's kind of a line along the bottom of the panel right above the niches. And the sunlight creeps down until it kind of lines up with that line. And right at that point, you start to see kind of a peak in in the shadow. Well, yeah, a shadow peak form in where the sunlight has been shining. So there's this kind of peak shadow that kind of appears. And the peak shadow will creep down and cover one of those niches perfectly so that the niche is in black shadow and everything else around it is lit up. Wow. And I mentioned there's about four of these niches and it will do one each day. So this is actually like a four or five day marker thing. Oh my word. If you go out there each day and and it's not overcast so you can hopefully see it, (laughs) you'll see it cover one niche one day. The next, the next day, move over, cover the third niche, and then the fourth, and then move on. And what happens with that pillar rock you were talking about? So after the peak in the shadow kind of disappears, covers the niche, and then kind of disappears, if you turn around and face the east bank and look at that predominant rock, you'll see the sun start to rise right along the south edge of that rock. Wow. And just follows that south edge. So it's not like, it's not at the tip top, it's like along the edge. Yep. Ah, I see. Follows along the edge. So it's it's sort of a, almost like a horizon marker, right? Yes. Yeah, the rock's right on the horizon. And so the sun will, will come up on the horizon right next to this rock and then just follow it right up along the side of the rock. And then how did you, how did your research continue to sort of examine that this was not just an accident, just sort of a coincidence? Well, I went out at other times of year to see if the same visual phenomena happened any other time of the year, and it does not. You can't see it any other time, not on the solstice, not any other random day. I have not noticed anything in particular on either of the solstice either. I'll just mention that. Mm -hmm. So then I started looking more at the site itself and paying a little more attention to the formation of the site. And again, I mentioned earlier that the clearing on the West Bank seems a little unusual. And I was staring at that and going, yeah, that really is unusual. There's all these rocks surrounding it that look rather naturally formed. And then this clearing, and it almost even kind of steps down. There's almost kind of three levels to the clearing. And so I started thinking that it's not natural. The Native people actually moved the rocks out of that area to create this clearing to get to the panel on the back where they could create the rock art. So they would have had to have moved all of these rocks before they could even create the petroglyphs. So it's almost like like they were creating a shrine or some sort of a religious place for a collection of, of a, a ritual or ceremony. Exactly. Hmm. And I started thinking, okay, well, if they did that, what else did they do? Right. And I started looking at that rock on the East Bank and paying a little closer attention to it. 
and thinking about, you know, geology and laws of superposition and things like that and going, well, all of those rocks would have been formed at the same time on that bank, yet except that one sticks up more than the others. The others are all kind of flat on top that are next to it and in the same geological formation. But that one has more of a point to it and sticks up. And I thought, if I go take a closer look, I bet one face of those rocks is very flat. And so went over and took a closer look. And sure enough, what is now the south face of them, where the sun rises, is very flat. And so I started thinking, I think they raised this rock. They lifted this rock up so that what would have been the top is now the south side. And in fact, it looks like the top of the rock has been chipped a little bit to almost Mm -hmm. form the peak. And I was pretty convinced, but of course I am not a geologist. (laughs) So I brought a geologist out to the site to confirm or not. Deny, yeah. Yeah, deny what I thought I had found. And in fact, the geologist came out and did lots of measurements, measured strikes and dips of rocks, compared it to the other geology in the area, looked at a lot of things, did a nice report for me and analysis and determined that I was in fact correct that the clearing on the West Bank was cleared out intentionally. The rock on the East Bank was intentionally lifted and moved into its position to create these solar shadow alignments. That's phenomenal. What an amazing journey. You've got geological evaluation independently supporting your working hypothesis. Thank you, Mrs. Science. (laughs) I was quite happy, I must say. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think this is important because... I think in some ways it validates some of the other archaeoastronomy that has been studied, researched, hypothesized throughout the state. I even tend to be a little more skeptical of the ones where the sun just rises and the notch on the horizon. But I think this validates that there might be something to those as well. But even yours, it seems, is more intricate. Yeah. It's more complex than just a simple depiction of standing somewhere on the horizon and seeing a coincidence with a particular notch, you've got a lot of things going on simultaneously, all coordinated to be sort of put it together. You've got the rock art, you've got the niches, you've got some sort of a standing stone. And then of course, you've got the subject matter. Is there anything aligned or anything significant with respect to the designs or the intricate conventions that occur on the rock that might lead one to think it has cosmological or cosmic astronomical import or no? There are ladder designs on each side of the niches, uh, particularly the one in the center has a ladder design going kind of up down on each side of the niche, which is quite interesting. Some might hypothesize that the ladder could represent transitions moving to uh, um, an altered state of consciousness, something like that. Mm-hmm. There are some, like I mentioned earlier, bisected circles, either half or with a cross in the center. That certainly could symbolize, well, an axis mundi, kind of a center of the universe place for them. Certainly a very important spot. It could have more celestial representations. I tend to stop a little bit still at this point at interpreting the images too much, especially because they're they're abstract, curvilinear. They're hard to even really determine where one begins and one ends at times. Mm-hmm. So it's a little harder to interpret these exact images. So I I kind of took an approach of looking at the site more as a whole and why it was even there, why it was important, and kind of concluded that the rock art probably was a way of communicating again with the celestial beings that were up there. And clearly this was a place for for watching and interacting with the celestial beings. Well, I I would uh, 
certainly be not well received if I didn't ask the million dollar question that everyone always asks of us, how old is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Isn't that what everybody comes comes to a site and says, well, how old is it? Who lived there? And what is it? I wish I knew. Is that a good answer? Yeah, um. <laughs> there, you, there you go. I wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I did my scientific analysis and I came up with, with some things. Um, I ran the... Well, as we know, the position of the sun changes over time and whatnot. So there are computer programs that we can kind of step back in time visually and look at where the sun might have risen on the horizon in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not technologically savvy enough to say how accurate these programs are, but I did use one called Starry Night and looked in the past and I figured out based on Starry Night that the alignments probably would have happened for the autumnal or fall equinox as far back as 100 BC. Oh my word. Wow. Any further than that, it might be off a little bit. And then for the, the vernal or spring one, it was 380. But I really feel the whole site is much older based on what, what I know just from my research and seeing other sites throughout California and other rock art and comparing the site to others and the images there. And I don't know, I, I suspect that it's probably older, but I don't have proof. But, it's, but it sounds <laughs> like there's a minimum age of at least 2000 years ago, at least on up to, to, uh, you know, historic times that the site could very well have been used as a predictor of those equinoxes. And then in turn, we could have had even an earlier association for various astronomically significant uh, worship. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the site is not only is it rather definitive of archaeoastronomy and the fact that native peoples of California did in fact observe the sky, interact with the sky, it was important to them, important enough to go moving huge boulders around. And I'm talking huge boulders. <laughs> well, Christine, this has been a fantastic hour-long odyssey into archaeoastronomy, and I'm so happy that you had a chance to, you know, visit with us and our audience and, and learn and share with you your enthusiasm for this uh, discipline and learn more about you personally, Christine. Yeah, thank you. Phenomenal. So uh, thank you so much and come back again sometime. Anytime. It's my pleasure. Clearly, I could say more. So thank you. <laughs> so th that's about it. Uh, that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.